So today we enter into what's known as ordinary time. That sounds like very not exciting. Uh, whoever uh, came up with the names of these seasons like, kind of blew it for ordinary time, right? <laughs> We've had this prolonged season of Easter and um, kind of for, for us as a community, it was marked with, with baptisms was, was beginning this, this way that we can physically and bodily um, witness and bear witness to Jesus um, uh, being dead and, and being raised and in so doing, raising us to new life. And then we had last week Pentecost season. And now we slowly taper into this summertime rhythm. If you've been uh, over next door to Godly Play, you're familiar with this giant quilt. And so you can see we're in that big green matrix that is happening over there. And it reminds me of, this, of these words from Tish Harrison Warren. She says, the new life into which we are baptized is lived out in days, hours, and minutes. God is forming us into, a, into new people. And the place of that formation is in the small moments. It's kind of in that green morass <laughs> that, that we all experience um, in this upcoming season. It's these small moments of the season. It can be especially helpful uh, to hold some of kind of the, the key outlines of the Easter story in our pocket. Um, I think these are kind of the key outlines to the whole scripture story, but they're definitely present. Um, they're capitalized and bold-faced in the resurrection of Jesus. So here's a refresher. If you're ever stuck in an elevator and someone wants to know like the Christian elevator pitch, what God is saying to us, I think there's kind of four words from God. The first is, I love you. Okay. Second is, I am with you. Be not afraid. The persistent, one of the most popular kind of phrases in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. When something big happens of God, God says, be not afraid. And lastly, walk with me. We see this in all the post-resurrection stories of Jesus. that They often happen on the road. Each of these words are persistent declarations throughout Scripture of God's desire to see creation flourish, be redeemed, participate with God in renewal. So hold these in the front of your mind. I'm going to invite Gary up to read our Scripture for today. Uh, this is like Trinity Sunday is what this is known, on, known as that marks the beginning of ordinary time. Kind of soft focus on those words as Gary reads. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted Jesus came near and spoke to them. I received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Look. I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present system age. That's the word of God. Thanks be God. Justin, you can go back to that last one, just, just so you can see. Um, you can go back to the scripture. Yeah, um, you, you might be wondering, where is I love you in all this, right? I, I honestly think that, it's, that he's still hanging out with these guys that ran away from him, right? The, the fact that he... Um, comes back and doesn't seek new friends is an inherent statement of the strength of God's love. 
Um, he, he ends, ends the whole good news of Matthew's gospel with the promise of I am with you and uh, appears to them um, in a fearlessness, in a unguardedness, um, in this invitation to, to go, to, to send them, to walk with him in his spirit. So uh, you can kind of see each of these themes even in, in Jesus' last words. These are the final words of Matthew's good news, and the resurrected Jesus has gone ahead of his disciples. As he told the Marys, he would. He meets them on the mountaintop, and they encounter Jesus, and we're told they worshipped him, but some doubted. This seems like a kind of significant moment here. They worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came near to him. That's also a place for that I love you is, that Jesus came near to them and spoke to them. This is one of the sentences in um, like scripture study studies that scholars point to that supports how real this must have been because it's kind of embarrassing. It's a bad look uh, for them. The reason being, if Matthew was making this stuff up, he wouldn't embarrass the movement by writing that doubt was baked into the earliest moments. So like the cross, which stands at the very center of the Christian faith, it has to be real because no one would make this stuff up like this. (laughs) The resurrected Jesus had just been dead hours earlier, and the church has come to believe in that dying period and actually went down, down, down and harrowed hell, like went down to the deepest depths and rattled the prison cells and broke the chains of those held captive by sin, it now shows up on a mountain. You see the the depth and the height of this love, and he appears to his closest friends, these erstwhile companions who scattered following his death. This, This Rushing Jesus movement, all the people that he gathered and fed out of kids' lunchboxes on, on mountainsides, all these numbers, thousands of people, has, has kind of slowed down to a trickle. Pared down to 12, then to 11, then to just two, the Marys at the tomb. And now it's building back up to 11 on this mountaintop. This is a really bad pyramid scheme for early Christianity. The resurrected, victorious Jesus can't even get his guys completely on board. Sure, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Of course they doubted. People don't die and then come back to life. I find this section oddly comforting. Origin stories are really important. Every superhero has an origin story. I'm not claiming that Jesus is a superhero conventionally. But the church operating in the power of the resurrection's origin story has both doubt and faith. Notice this. They worshipped him and some doubted. I'm, I'm not convinced that that is describing these, like, the good part of the class up here sitting in the front row and then, like, the doubters in the back just kind of spacing out. I think they are worshipping all of them, and they are doubting what they are seeing and experiencing. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but the the nail-scarred, wounded healer shows up, and they all worship, and some of them also doubted. Worship and doubt exist in the same space, in the same people, and that's okay. I think it's a specific kind of doubt, though. It's a doubt that leans into worship. 
This is maybe a different sort of doubt. This is a development on their doubt a few days earlier when they took off. And I think it happens because they've encountered the risen Jesus. They're the first, like the bones of the first worshiping community that is made to hold doubt in their midst. Doubt and difference. It's strong enough. It's broad enough. It's generous enough. It is like, you know, unafraid enough to have doubt. It, it, it's, it's tempered by Jesus' promise. I love you. I'm with you. Be not afraid. Walk with me. Jesus came near and spoke to them. Jesus came near. He draws near. Instead of disqualifying them for their doubt, he gives them instructions for participation. He gives them a call. He gives them a commission. Even in their like double worship doubting state, this is the great commission we, some of us know by heart. He says, I've received all authority on heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day to the end of the present age. These are, these are beautiful and they are strange final words for Matthew's gospel. On the one hand, if you are here, if you are not of Jewish ancestry, and probably even if you are, you are probably the byproduct of this great commission. That someone went to all the nations, panta ta ethne, it's like the whole world, everyone, all the tribes, all the peoples, those who were on the outside, the gates are now swung wide open by the gracious invitation of the spirit-resurrected Jesus. And on the other hand, we've seen this go really wrong. Andy alluded to this like kind of triumphal uh, church, this like resurrection church who somehow forgot about the crucifixion or something like that. Maybe our younger selves have been really like convinced that the way to do this can like uh, um, the way to do this commission right is to kind of door to door salesman it, you know. But let's step back a second, remember, and rehab and, and kind of step outside of some of the strange things we've made it. Let's, let's kind of like try to imagine what is so great about this great commission. I, I think the two kind of pressure points on this are, are authority and disciples. Like what is authority and who are disciples? I think there are a lot of Netflix and other documentaries on church authority problems, okay? So we won't get into that right now. And I think some of us might still, because of that, kind of trigger and cringe at the word authority off of Jesus' lips. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It seems you can justify a lot <laughs> by claiming authority. For this reason, the commission has, has been a tool for a lot of sorts of supremacies and colonialisms and a host of other spiritualizing impulses that do a lot of harm and damage to bodies while focusing on higher things and leaving behind the other great commission to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the thing. When I hear all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, my mind kind of flits over the master story of Jesus, the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, and, 
and it has this shape. I love Andy's quote about, uh, about God's love having a shape, and I, I think specifically Christ's love and Christ's identity has this shape, and it's this kind of U-shape, this parabola shape. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing that's the dip. <laughs> and, and he was made into the very nature of a servant, human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. You're still going down, 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 down. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that is the... That is the Whatever the, the opposite of the zenith or apex is, it's the bottom, 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 and it's even deeper. It's rock bottom, and therefore God exalted, and this is the climb. This is the exaltation. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, and we don't even have enough breath for this run-on verse that Paul is saying to us. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' authority is predicated. Like you, this is whole arc in story, and it's not always up and to the right. It's rather down so that God can raise him. It is predicated on non-presumption, on self-emptying, on identification with the lowest, and on Jesus' actual sacrificial dying on a criminal's cross. So if that's the definition of Christ-like authority, take care if you're seeking authority. <laughs> it is going to involve a certain kind of emptying, a certain kind of death, a certain kind of giving up. Consider that pattern. Consider those prerequisites. And only then, after Jesus has hit rock bottom with and for us, does God raise him. God lifts him. God exalts him, gives a nameless slave the name above names. This is authority. This is authority over bowing knees and confessing tongues all over heaven and earth. And we're told even under the earth, I have no idea what that means. Jesus is in charge is what it means. Jesus is Lord. Do what he says because he knows. Jesus has given us the gift of going first. High, low, deep, and wide. He's been there. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. Give him your faith. Give him your everything. This is the invitation. These are the implications. Because of this kind of authority, the commission sends us out to proclaim this Lord in, in a very specific way. Not from above, not with a bullhorn, but from below and from beside with Jesus and like Jesus. This means the Great Commission is as much or more concerned with the way of the gospel. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The way of the gospel than even the message of the gospel because the resurrected Christ we see is the medium and the message himself. Jesus is the good news. That God would become a human, not just because, not, not just any human, but a poor Jew with his back against the wall, one who suffered injustice, accusation, betrayal, and the ultimate death of an outsider, and is vindicated and now has authority, means that we need to learn a new way. 
a way that's not the way we would have written the story. We need to graft into God's thoughts in ways which are above and beyond and perhaps even below and beneath the way we would do it. That's the sort of authority that we're given. That's the commission. That's the job. We're gifted this to us as friends, daughters, sons, parents, neighbors. Authority born of death and sacrifice and a rugged commitment to flourishing and benefit of the other. That's what's happening on that mountaintop. Notice how different this is than like the mountaintop spirituality most of us have from like youth camp or college ministry or something like that. So that's, that's kind of maybe reframing authority for us if we need that. The other, the, the other maybe reframe or, or framing that we need is, is what it means when Jesus says to make disciples. So many of us, like Andy, had this like heroic picture of what it might mean to be a disciple. Our, our spirituality is like a Holy Land Indiana Jones spirituality. I, I love those movies so much. Uh, I'm so distracted by how much I love those movies right now. We can misunderstand this instruction, go make disciples of all nations, and come to mean like to broadcast a message. Again, like this is like the guy saying, this belongs in a museum, and Indiana Jones says, you belong in a museum, you know, right? Um, anyways. Um, <laughs> but if we really understand what, what it means to make disciples, we don't think that this is just a message that someone can take and leave. And then we can walk away and feel good about ourselves for like downloading upon them the message. Once we've gotten it off our chest, we don't feel responsible any longer, or that we can like use really good modern marketing principles, a bullhorn or a mass mailer to get this good news to as many people as possible, hoping that the conversion rate works and the message will stick for a certain number of people. Does this at all match? what we've seen in the life of Jesus? What if making disciples is like terribly long-term, inefficient, and really risky? Like risky enough that Jesus lost some disciples and actually like got turned on by some of his disciples. Like, and he still never left them. He returned to them. Even when they didn't get it, even when some of them carried a, a kind of doubt in them. I mean, in Jesus' life, do we have any evidence that Jesus had many more than like a couple dozen disciples during a three-year ministry? This is, this is bad math for church planners, by the way. <laughs> um, by the standards of what we've been told, for whatever reason, we have expected our discipleship and disciple-making, like, like what we've come to expect about this, Jesus himself would be a failed practitioner of discipleship for evangelical Christianity. If you think you know better than Jesus, that, doesn't, that means he's not in charge. That means he's not Lord. We need to reconsider. Perhaps it's because being and making disciples is pretty dynamic. It's pretty messy a lot of moving targets happening all at once. It's really costly. Um, it costs a lot to make a disciple. It, it actually, it didn't cost anything, but it also cost everything, right? 
Um, I really like for maybe a different paradigm of what it means to be a disciple. I really love Dallas Willard's phrase of, of what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. So often we've, we've tried to like uh, flatten out um, who we are and who we're becoming to, and have like a WWJD kind of uh, situation happening. And Dallas Willard almost flips it upside down and says, discipleship is a process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. That means you don't have to go anywhere. You don't need anything added onto your life to become a disciple of Jesus. You need to submit to Jesus and then begin in the imaginative process that will last the rest of your life to figure out how you should obey Jesus and become like Jesus based on the people that are around you and the responsibilities you've been given. You, you don't need more. You don't need less. You just need to open your eyes to what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is asking of your real life. This will take your whole life. It will take a lot of maturity and a lot of discernment and a lot of honesty with yourself and from others to be this kind of disciple. You'll need someone else, probably, to help you become like Jesus. This isn't like, this doesn't happen in a laboratory. This happens in our lives. I think this is why baptism and discipleship are linked. Because like, baptism that we saw and spoke about on Easter, this is an, an entry, it's a participation into the triune life of God through joining in Jesus' death and resurrection in baptism and, and being raised by the Spirit. So in discipleship, like in baptism, you are saying with your body, my life is in Christ. You are saying with your body, my life is in Christ. That's what it means to become a disciple, to grow as a disciple. Paul says simply and profoundly, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And when you can say that and, and maybe mean it more today than you did yesterday, it means like even dying is okay. Because to live is Christ. This makes the teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you much more of a like downstream venture than trying to swim upstream. Your, your obedience comes not just by trying really hard to love and be like Jesus as if Jesus isn't in the room at all times everywhere. And instead, you're, you're just linking up with what God is doing, the, the present and living Christ among us by Christ's spirit. You see how triune this is on this Trinity Sunday? All these operations happening at the same time. We're learning God's love in Christ by the spirit. Disciples are men and women who spend their time and their life in the presence of Jesus, in Jesus' spirit, who won't leave us even to the end of the age. Um, kind of tagging on to some of what Andy was saying, I, I, I think about this contrast um, with something Matt Hoffman said years ago. He preached on this passage in the early days of Oak Church, and he, his was a similar testimony about basically the... The, the younger me would be so disappointed with, with the like boring, normie, adult, disciple me. Because I thought being a disciple was something heroic. And then Matt, in a brilliant Hoffman-esque uh, bit of reflection, says, 
the difference between the one who goes to rural China to be a disciple and the one who goes to suburban Durham to be a disciple is geography, and that's it. <laughs> this is a call then for each of us to dig really deeply into our locations, into the place that God has put us, to trust that we're here not by accident. That shouldn't psych us out, that should just open our eyes, open our hands, open our hearts. That, that these, these stations where we're at, the people who we interact with easily, the people who we interact with frustratingly, are not limitations, they are invitations for us. This is the place where God has called you. This is the place where Jesus deeply loves and actually is trying to love through you. This is a place that God has already begun to renew by God's spirit. All of this is already happening everywhere, all around us, and we just need to wake up to it. So friends, don't think any of this is possible on our own effort. It, it, you might be listening to all this and just feel exhausted by it. Trust me, this ordinary time season, this, as Godly Play calls it, a good green growing season, is a time when so much is happening, but it is not necessarily a season of much effort. It is a place where we receive God's grace like the rain that waters the fields and renews it and grows good fruit even when we don't know that much is happening in us or through us or around us. We don't have enough on our own. Y'all are awesome, but we don't have enough willpower or resources or attention or goodness to sustain all of this on our own and thank God that Jesus has promised to be with us, to give us everything that we need. We don't have to muddle around on our own. God won't leave us to our own devices. God gives us each other as well. We won't be spiraling in our doubt. Jesus' presence continues to be this three-dimensional assurance that God loves us, is with us, we don't need to be afraid, and we can walk into this world with Jesus. This, um, I, I hope again that you're sensing all of the Trinitarian things that are happening on this Trinity Sunday. Uh, I was tempted to, to try to pull like a really pastor move and, and give like the clinching Trinitarian analogy, solid liquid gas or some other heretical uh, chicken and egg uh, illustration. But instead, God has actually given us a picture of what it means to live in this world that is, is given as a gift from the loving community of God and exists and is being renewed in the spirit by the love of God and the presence of Jesus. And this happens in this community right here, right now. So friends, go and make, go and be disciples of Jesus. Live out of your spirit baptism, that voice from on high saying, you, you are my child, the one who I deeply love. Go into all these places everywhere just with a fluency in good news that it pours out of us in work out our salvation together in fear and trembling to the glory of God. Will you all pray with me? Uh, Lord, we give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks that your authority is 
um, is so powerful, but so gentle and so good. And we need to learn more about how to operate that way. And we give you thanks that you call us to be learners and wonders and people growing in your goodness. Um, Lord, help our words reflect that growth in Christ-likeness and help our lives be the sort of lives that um, even if we were on mute, people would still see you and understand you and know you better and know your love. We give you thanks uh, for this season and this church body and this neighborhood and this place and all of the gifts that you give us in all of the ways that um, this good slow work um, works itself out um, over time. Uh, make us present to it. Open us up uh, to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.